the point that you made shows you the problem. If you're a marketing person and you're not talking to customers and trying to figure out the value proposition for them, um, obviously you're not going to be very successful because that's what marketing people are supposed to do. They're supposed to be the connection between the customer and the company and forming those relationships and figuring out what the customer needs, but also from the technological people, what's possible? Because customers don't know what's possible. They, they can kind of say what they want, but they can only want what they know about. Welcome to the CIO Exchange Podcast, where we talk about what's working, what's not, and what's next. I'm Edian Porter de Leon. Is security a barrier to innovation, or would innovation not even be relevant without security? Security is often seen as a tax or barrier to new and creative solutions that could potentially create more value if security didn't slow everything down. But is this still true? In this episode, we have a hallway-style conversation with Kurt Carlson, the author of the book entitled Innovation, who also served as the CEO of SRI International widely known for the work done to create Apple's Siri interface and many other world-changing innovations. Kurt is joined by Karen Warstel, senior cybersecurity strategist at VMware, and they discuss the fundamental flaws to many approaches to security technology and how IT leaders will need to make dramatic shifts in their operational models in order to solve these problems. Kurt and Karen cover topics ranging from real value creation perspectives and frameworks to security innovation and redefining company leadership principles for the future. So Karen, Kurt, a lot of people have sort of some misconceptions about security as a barrier to innovation when in fact, I feel like what really fascinates me, I feel like real innovation, sustained innovation couldn't exist without security. Maybe maybe exists is too strong. Maybe it wouldn't be relevant without security. And within that context, Karen, I kind of want, I want to get our arms around today. What are those myths? What are those misunderstandings about security's attacks, security's enabler, security really as an, an innovative factor? And what's that relationship? You know, this is the most timely conversation we could be having right now because given the current circumstance around cybercrime and the growth in cybercrime and the losses that uh, companies and uh, our nation is facing in terms of cybercrime, security is a reality, so we have to deal with it. The question is, do we deal with it as a tax or do we deal with it as a value add? And so I'm really excited, Kurt, to have you here with us today because I can't think of a a better person to have this conversation with. And I'd love to start off with getting a level set and setting the stage as we talk about innovation, just to make sure that we all understand terms and and meaning here. Could you clarify for us as we get started the terms that we'll be using invention, innovation, and value creation, the differences between those? Yes. uh, Thank you, Karen. Great to be with you. And um, It's a great question because uh, what we discover in all of our workshops around the world is there's an enormous confusion about that. So, for example, if we went, uh, we're part of a meeting with 100 executives, we might ask them to put post-it notes on the board and write down the definition for innovation, value creation, customer value, and a value proposition and put those post-it notes on the wall. That's a great exercise. I'm doing that the next time I have a meeting. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well... So, so so, here's what I predict you're going to see, is none of the answers are going to be the same. Now, let's just take one of those as an example, the word innovation. So, again, I've asked this question of tens of thousands of executives, and they usually say it's something new, something novel, something better, and which is not exactly wrong. But the one thing they always forget about is the business model. And obviously, when you're thinking about security for the reasons you set up, um, that's fundamental. If there's no business model, it's not going to work. And when and, you know, most executives realize this, but if it's not forefront in their mind, 
they're probably not paying enough attention to it. And that's what we see in everything else we do. So those terms basically set the predicate for how your team is going to work and the kind of work it's going to do. If um, everybody, so let's just take cybersecurity. It's an interdisciplinary research. There are all kinds of AI technologies, communications technologies. They all come together to solve a, a serious security problem. And they all speak slightly different languages. That's why you want them is because they represent different disciplines. Well, the one value they must share to work efficiently is the language of the customer. What does it mean to deliver value to the customer? And that's where we see enormous gaps in teams that we've done, you know, worked with all around the world. Well, I'd love to follow up on that a little bit. So there's a huge disconnect in terms of what innovation really means and what adding value means. And you're putting it in the context of the customer. Yet we have thousands, I think, thousands of cybersecurity inventions out there today that may or may not be contributing in a significant way to solving the problem. Um, Could you like, what's your perspective on that? Well, it's absolutely true. Um, only about 1% to 3% of patents ever get commercialized. That means most of them are just waste. I mean, they're novel, they're new. People confuse them with innovations. They're not. They're inventions. Invention's not an innovation. It's not until people, until it solves a problem that has meaning for others and people buy it and use it, that it becomes an innovation. So that shows you a bit of the problem. Now, um, as was set up by Jan, security is a very complicated issue. It's a very difficult topic to get your head around. It's, a, it's what we, we think of as a complex problem. It's not a complicated problem. It's a complex problem. It's got all these different dimensions to it. It's got unknowns, got unknown unknowns. It's got interactions that can be surprising. Um, so all those things make it a really uh, difficult thing. And, um, and because of that, and because most people are not really trained in developing solutions that have meaning for others, what we see is there's an enormous amount of waste, enormous amount of waste in every company we've ever been in. So that 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 waste, that inefficiency, that comes from the lack of empathy of being able to put ourselves in customers' shoes. Well, that's part of it. It's um, well. Let me ask you this, Karen. How many how many companies have you been in where every employee is trained in value creation, which is their job? If you're a professional, your your job is to solve problems that haven't been solved before. How many, how many companies have you been in where all the employees were trained in understanding that which is fundamental to their job? One. That was when I worked for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, we, well, we did. We, we, I mean, at SRI International, um, when I was CEO and with you, because our job was to create new value, we said, is there a university in the world that's teaching that? And the answer is no. People know how to solve problems, and certainly in the security realm, you meet lots of brilliant people because it's so hard, right? That, that's not the issue. But how many of them have actually been trained to solve problems that have meaning for others? Almost almost none. And nobody came to SRI knowing those skills. We hired PhDs from Harvard, MIT, Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley. There wasn't a single one who knew how to solve problems that had meaning for others. They could solve problems, but making that connection. So if we just take security as an example, because it is so difficult, I think that becomes even more important that the employees really understand the dimensions of that, what they have to do, and the ways you go about solving complex problems, not just complicated ones. Complicated ones are like building a, you know, a building. 
You know, there's basic management things you do and you laws of physics. And, and if you behave properly, the building won't fall down and look pretty good. Security is not like that. It's much more difficult. So if we were going to try to step into the customer's shoes and start there and kind of bring that whole deep understanding with the voice of the customer, which is something I think we talk about a lot at VMware. But I think one of the things we don't have is an opportunity for every single person who's doing engineering and marketing to actually sit to sit with customers, right? We don't necessarily sit with them all of the time. A lot, of, Some of us do. That's kind of part of my job. But the, um, not everybody gets that opportunity. So how do we... How do we change that dynamic? How do we? How have you seen other companies deal with that inefficiency and in bringing that sense of the voice of the customer and the, to the engineering team? Well, you know, just just the point that you made shows you the problem. If you're a marketing person and you're not talking to customers and trying to figure out the value proposition for them, um, obviously you're not going to be very successful because that's what marketing people are supposed to do. They're supposed to be the connection between the customer and the company and forming those relationships and figuring out what the customer needs, but also from the technological people, what's possible? Because customers don't know what's possible. They, they can kind of say what they want, but they can only want what they know about. Um, so that connection is really fundamental. You're absolutely right. So, so here's an interesting factoid. So again, having done workshops with thousands of executives, how many teams have been able to actually articulately and quantitatively describe the customer need they're trying to represent when we first start running the workshops? What do you, what percentage do you think can do that? I'd guess it's pretty low. I'm guess yeah. I guess it's I guess it's astonishing low. <laughs> it's low and then really low. Yeah. zero. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think there's a low setup here. There's there's a low or no setup here. Yeah, I mean, if we could use negative numbers for this, we probably would use them, right? It's <laughs> oh, that, I like that. I like that framework because there's sometimes you have to unlearn what you have learned. You have to help people unlearn. So that is a neg it is a negative setback. You have to pull people from all the stuff that's erroneous, and you have to at least get them to baseline. Okay, let me at least get you to zero, so you're not going in the wrong direction. <laughs> That is brilliant. That, and that is absolutely correct. That is 100% correct because people build up these mental models that how they view the world, whether it's right or not, you know, they have them. And sometimes they're wrong. So you're absolutely right. They have to give up their mental model to get to zero before they can go forward. And we see that all the time. And it's, it's really hard. It's hard to get rid of mental models you've already got. So so, so this really is the fundamental reason why almost, well, most, let's just say most innovations fail. There's no real customer need. There's, it's no, And it's a really hard thing because, as we just said, it's the interaction of going back and forth between what customers are doing and what the problems are and understanding that and being empathetic, as you said, Karen, about their life. And then what's possible? And how do you put that together? So it, if you don't have a way to bridge that and iterate back and forth, back and forth really rapidly, it's really almost impossible to solve those problems efficiently. So that that's something you train in your workshops, right? Is how to do that iteration and how to do yeah. Yeah. Is it. Is that a value creation workshop? Yeah, we call them value creation forms. But um, so when we typically do a workshop with a company, we will put them through an eight-hour program to learn the fundamentals. But the real point is to get them together every couple weeks or month. As you know, we did an SRI and people would stand up and give a five-minute value proposition uh, focused on the most fundamental questions. Nothing terribly complicated, but 
because the fundamentals are so hard to answer, it doesn't make sense to give two-hour presentations until you can actually say, what is the customer's need? Let me, you know, let me really describe it to you quantitatively, specifically. I'm not going to give you 20 things. I'm going to give you the fundamental problem that people have. And we're going to start there and develop a value proposition around that. And then go to the technological folks or whoever uh, to come up with a compelling solution that's two or 10 times better than the competition. Just need, approach, benefits per cost, competition. Those four questions are the fundamentals of the value proposition, as you know, that we all use at SRI. Uh, we did when I was there, and I still do all over the world. Um, and it's really hard to answer those four questions because they all interact with each other. You know, if you change the need, the approach changes. If you change the competition comes along, you might have to pivot and do something else. So, so we built this, you know, really intense kind of interaction process based on answering the most fundamental questions first. You know, eventually when you do something like Siri, which we did, or high-definition television, obviously there's a big team there and you've got to do all kinds of things. But if you don't get the fundamentals right, it doesn't matter what else you do, right? I, You know what I see all the time, and um, I mean, my experience is near, nowhere near as vast as yours. But in, ever since I learned about doing NABC, the need, the approach, the benefit, cost-benefit, and the competition, that's NABC. That's that four questions that you're talking about. And ever since I started really um, looking at that, the thing that I became aware of is we're really enamored as technologists. We're really enamored with the technology itself, and we're really enamored with finding a problem for our solution. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It, absolutely. And let me let me really quickly, let me insert a Steve Jobs moment here. And, and so apologies for those who are groaning with the Steve Jobs reference. But just I just stumbled, literally yesterday, I was just stumbling through YouTube and saw this video that me, many people have seen one, like a lot of times where Steve Jobs many years ago, somebody had this big criticism, he's on stage and he answers it. And he, he answers it with just what you're talking about. You can't start with the technology, then try to figure out where you're going to try and sell it. You can't start with, let's sit down with the engineers and figure out what awesome technology we have and then how we're going to market that. It's what incredible benefits can we give to the customer? Where can we take the customer? And, and it's tough because, because a lot of that is like you get engineers, people who you were talking about, current PhDs from you know, MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, and you get you know, people who are just awesome at creating phenomenal technology. And they're like, great, here you go. And they're like, and it's like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Well, what is it for? What benefits? I'm like, I don't even, this is, it's, it's great technology. It's got to be great for something. This And taking that back to security, you go to RSA and you walk around RSA and you're like, there's a million people who have so many, look at my technology, look at my technology. And, you know, where do, and where do you, how do you get, Karen, Kurt, how do you get back then to where are we taking a customer? What great benefits are we providing a customer? How that NABC, the framework. So, Anything you do to create value, if, if it's for other people, you, I, I believe you have to answer those four questions. What's the actual need, problem the person has? What's your approach? Obviously, if you don't have an approach for the offering and the business model, you're not going to go anywhere. you got to be able to be very specific about the benefits for cost. That's perceptual. That's what the customer sees. So you got to be very specific about that. And you always have competition. I mean, security is one of the most intensely competitive businesses in the world today. And it's, and it's really hard to explain and differentiate what you're doing. So you, you really want to do things that are compelling, where you go to the customer and they go, yeah, that really was going to change my life. I'm going to feel so much better about using that application. So you're absolutely right. And Steve Jobs was the master of this. 
the iPhone is the most classic example of what was wrong with Nokia's phones? Keys. What's wrong with keys? They're, right, they're hard to use. Oh, let's make more keys. So Nokia made these crazy-looking, stupid phones with you know two dozen keys on them. It's like, what's this is madness. <laughs> this is absolute madness. And you only have to understand one thing, which is that there are going to be an infinite number of keys. So you can't use a keyboard. You've got to use some other kind of device where you can reconfigure the keys to be anything you want. Well, he, he could have done that with a stylus or done it, but he said, no, a stylus isn't good enough. We can make a better interactive device by creating the touchscreen. And so all you had to know there was uh, keys aren't going to scale. We need a computer interface. And um, how do we do that better than anybody else in the touchscreen? was that. Now, of course, there was a thousand other things that had to be done to make that happen. But at the highest level, at the NABC level of what's the need, what's the approach, what are the benefits per cost in the competition, that's the whole story. And once you get there, the only question was, can he do it? Can he make it work? Right? Can he make it work? And of course, as we know, he did make it work. And seven years later, Nokia is gone. <laughs> so, yeah. And, 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 the, and the whole thing about the iPhone was convenience and functionality. It wasn't about the keyboard at all. It really wasn't the the form the form factor was secondary to the fact that the customer's need was for convenience and functionality. That's it. Completely focused on the customer. How do you do that? Now it's not perfect. You know, when we did Siri, we said, you know, there's some applications where it'd be nice if you could just talk to the phone as opposed to typing in. So it's the same idea. You know, it's there's a million technologies in Siri. I mean, you know how hard that is. But the point was, it's, again, just exactly what Karen said. By the way, uh, going back to what the biggest mistake we see is this focus on people's technical approach. If you said, I mean, so we said, if you don't identify the need, you're lost. So that's, in effect, that's the biggest problem. But the biggest default that people go to is they focus on their technology. We call those big A's. They're all about the approach. I swear, if we were in a workshop now with any company in the world, any company in the world you can pick, and we had their six leading teams stand up and present their value propositions, I'll bet that five out of six are big A's. They're just, they're not focused on the customer, as Karen just said. Hey, can I can I pitch something out too? Because this is one of the things that like CIO, since our audience is mainly those those B two B technologists, they're focused on a few different things. And one of them, one of the the momentum from the company company, the the company momentum is their sunk cost. There are fixed skills. So if I have these four tools that I've just spent you know collectively a hundred million dollars on, and I have this whole team that has X number of skills, how can I then take sort of that approach of like, well, let's pivot from that, that approach to the need, because my big A is full of sunk costs. I've got all this money sunk into these things <laughs> to secure email. And now I'm like, okay, now I have a distributed workforce, for example, my tax surface has increased exponentially. But then here's the stuff I have off the shelf. What, what, what is that perspective that that, that, that that technology leader should then take and say, look, it, I, can't, I have to stop looking at you know, the big A, and I have to go back to the first step. What's that need? And how can I change the approach despite what the sunk costs are, despite what my skill set is? How do, I, how do I make that pivot and then communicate that pivot? Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit, Jan, because, you know, reality is reality, right? It doesn't matter. That, <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you wasted all that money on that stuff that nobody wants, right? It's, um, you've got to move on. So what's, what's, what's one of the... How do you cut through this kind of... I mean, there's a dozen biases um, that 
get people to behave in these non-constructive ways, right? So confirmation bias is one, you know, sunk cost is one. There's a whole list of these things. So what we've discovered is that the most powerful thing is transparency. So Karen knows that, you know, the way we do value creation in the companies I work with in the universities is, again, people, you know, learn the fundamental, they learn the language of value creation, because otherwise you can't collaborate efficiently. And then we basically have people try and start by first answering those four questions, the NABC questions, but they do it in a team of five or six other folks where they present and they get feedback. So reframing is one of the most powerful ways to improve your value proposition really fast. So when we do this, you know, Karen gives her a great pitch, which she always gives. And then the team would go around and say, Karen, you know, I really like this part. That was brilliant. And never forget that uh, that was brilliant. This part is you might improve this because I didn't, I got lost. So here's an idea for that. Eyes of the end user. So now again, going back to Karen's first question is how do you involve that? Well, you you have somebody in the room and maybe you even have customers in the room who are taking that perspective for you. And then someone is, I'm, I'm the eyes of the funder. Would you invest in this? And you can add other points of view. So this is fundamental complexity analysis. Is you, If you want to understand a hard, complex problem, you need to reframe it and look at it from different perspectives. And so here's, here's the amazing thing if you do this, is somebody can get up there and defend something that doesn't make sense once, twice, three times, maybe even five times. But eventually, everybody knows it doesn't make sense. And at some point, the person who's giving the presentation knows it doesn't make sense. They just can't stand it. And they, <laughs> they, they have a choice at that point. Do they keep on trying to pretend that they can defend this indefensible value proposition and stay at the company or leave? Um, normally, what we find is the team converges on it, and they eventually begin to say no. And oftentimes, it's not as bad as they think. They actually have the capabilities to pivot into a better place. I mean, that's the sad part. You see this in companies all the time. They, they get stuck on something. They have brilliant people. They have all the money in the world. It's the best time in the history of their industry. And you're in these workshops, and you discover that nothing they're working on has any value for anybody. Um, that actually happened at a top 20 company once. Zero. And we don't decide that. We just give them a framework for them to decide. And the, the workshop normally takes um, a full two days, 10 hours a day for two days. After the first break at lunch, the team came up to me and said, Kurt, you know, it's the traffic's really bad here in Silicon Valley. Well, we need to leave at 5 today, and you want us to start at 7 tomorrow. I think we ought to start at 10. <laughs> well, they, they knew. They knew. They, they had discovered because by just reframing it and looking at each other from different points of view. So that, that simple idea is that I can't tell you how powerful that is. And as you sit in a meeting, I, I've often found myself in, in meetings and strategy meetings at prior companies where we're listening to it and going, oh, my God, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> you know, it, it's so, what I love about what I love about your value proposition in the four questions what do we know? And in the value creation approach is that it does make it very clear, very quickly where there is a hole 
and whether or not we're so enamored with our technology that we are forgetting to walk in the customer's shoes and how it would feel for them to actually have to use this. So, and that's just such, so from a security standpoint in the, in the time that we've got, I'd love to throw something out there for you because I think trying to look at outcomes, what's an outcome for a customer that would be compelling for a customer. And um, in the security world right now, like uh, there's some very sobering statistics that are coming out and I don't like to be the FUD factor all the time, but it feels like it sometimes. But we know that for the very sophisticated kinds of cyber attacks that we're all facing right now, that the damage is done from the time they first get entry into a network. The damage is done within 24 to 72 hours. Like the advanced persistent threat is set up, the command and control is set up, the chat, you know, the, the sleepers command and control is set up. All of that is in place very quickly. And the average time to detect the event is 56 days, which means that if we could help companies get 56 days average, it's worth many worse in many cases. Get from fifty-six days. Yeah. Get from fifty-six days to twenty-four hours. We've done a fifty X improvement. Right? That's a is that a value? Would you call that a value proposition? I think I could probably sell that idea. That's very sobering. <laughs> That's very sobering. <laughs> The next thing becomes, that's an, that's a great idea. It's a very, very, as you say, a very complex solution set. This is not a single product. This is not, this is a set of processes and, uh, and, and techniques and technology, right? Um, you bring, how do you bring all that together? Like if you said, this is my dream, this is what I'm going to, I'm going for this. We have to solve this problem. How do we go there? How do you go there for value creation and innovation? So you expect me to answer that question right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'd have to probably pay. We'd have to pay. You. Um, but the, but, you, but, you, but that's the right track, right? Is that you would come back and you'd say, "Okay, that's a goal. Now we convene the we convene the the teams and the workshops to go to work on this problem." So yeah, so uh, the way I would approach solving it, which is what we did at SRI when you were there, we, we, had, a, we had a great security group. Obviously, we um, people have written books about how amazing uh, they they are and what they've done. Anyway, so so again, it's a very complex problem. So the first thing we'd assemble a team, a small team of great people. Um, with a diverse set of backgrounds, uh, no overlaps. Um, each one would have a complementary point of view to add some other perspective to solving that problem. And we'd start by asking them to do the, answer those four questions. And we would iterate that. Um, they'd show up every two weeks and have to present again and get feedback. And we'd start uh, trying to peel the onion on that and find the key thing, the thing that really does matter. So somewhere in that mess of things, that causes that problem, is there some place we can focus to really find the, the kind of the golden nugget that would really make a difference to that? Now, um, what makes um, security also, you know, so interesting is not only is it kind of a, it's got all the FUD stuff on one side, but it's also got a lot of positive value on the other side because um, 
you know, your security, how your well-being, how you feel about yourself. It's like health in a way. You know, you know, you you know, you have to go to the doctor and you, you know, are a little fearful every time you go. But also you feel really good when you walk out and the doctor says, you know, you're doing fine. Is, is that the feeling the board has like when the security, the CISO and the CIO come in? They're just like, oh, man, this, this is the dentist. The dentist is coming. They're going to tell me we have a cavity. This this is that. So you can see the look on their face. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I have to say, every time when I, when I was at Microsoft, every time I would walk down the hallway to Jim Alchin's office, he was the head of Windows. He'd go, "Oh no, <laughs> not you." <laughs> it's, yeah. Ka- it's Karen. So, She's coming. What's <laughs> yeah? I was always the dentist with no Novocaine. <laughs> anyway, but let's turn it around a little bit and just say, on the other side of that, though, is the feeling you get if you do feel like your systems are secure and various ways. And we know how difficult that is because, again, there's so many dimensions. But every time somebody comes in and gives you a good solution to a piece of that problem, it's actually a big deal. It's not only a big business deal, it's a big emotional deal. And I, I wanted to emphasize that the emotional deal for security is a huge, huge plus. And I don't think, you know, as I look at the industry, I don't think it kind of understands that, like Steve Jobs understood that, right? So, so you made the point, Karen made the point that it was about the convenience and the, the identity of the user and that kind of thing. It was, you know, it wasn't at the technology level, it was at the upper levels of value in humanity. And basically, I think the security world plays in that space profoundly, <clears throat> really profoundly. And my sense is it doesn't appreciate the kinds of value we can provide that way it's not just the big A technology solution, you know, we're going to give you this widget, but here we have another white box um, for you to plug into, right? That's, it's not, that's not what it's all about to me. You know, I love that so much because I think when you have a great solution and you come up with a compelling story about how it makes a contribution to the greater good, um, you know, it's not always this, it, 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 I think more and more we're looking at resonating with those kinds of stories um, from a value standpoint, that there's value in that, right? The ES, the whole ESG perspective is about doing the right things. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not just a nice thing either. It's real value. When, when you make someone feel that the service is more convenient, more functional, more secure, all those things, but those are, even though they're not tangible business, you know, number things, that's real value. I mean, again, that's why Steve Jobs was so successful. He never got stuck in the kind of, you know, big A numerical kind of business stuff. He was up at a different level trying to find out, how do I really solve what the what my customers, you know, really upset about? What, what would really make a difference to them? So... There's a lot of teams that get mired in that, well, what is my PowerPoint presentation going to look like at my next QBR? And I need to make that go green, and that has to be green, and that, and this is red, and I got to get at least to yellow. And how am I going to do that? And if a point solution fixes it, then that's their value prop. And instead of thinking, what's the customer value, the customer benefit, they're like, what's going to be the benefit to my PowerPoint presentation at my QBR? <laughs> well, yeah, you, you just stepped into a really big issue, which is the difference between complex and complicated problems. So complicated problems, you know, you do these little point solutions and you think, gee, I'm, I'm wonderful, right? But the bigger problem, you know, again, we can go back to the iPhone example, but the bigger problem is not being really identified. Uh, the thing that would actually make the biggest difference to the customer. So that's what that's what we, we've 
you know, when we were working on these kinds of things, and I still work on these kinds of things, that's what we try and get people to focus on. What's the thing that really matters here that would make the biggest difference? And then can we pull the resources together to address it? That probably sounds a little abstract to your audience, but I don't think there's another good solution to that. You know, um, one of the things we talk about a lot here is the human side of being in cybersecurity. Because it's, um, it's as you pointed out, it's a, it's a terrifically complex uh, area to work. It's got a lot of stressors and a lot at stake. And it's increased. It's just getting bigger all the time. It's really easy for cybersecurity professionals to lose sight of the fact that they are working on something and working in a discipline that makes a difference for the planet. <laughs> big time. And, <laughs> big time. But, no, I, and I love that you said that mm-hmm. because... Because I think that it's so easy for that to be minimized when, you know, like the thing uh, I used to hear all the time as a child is that when you're up to your uh, neck, uh, up to your eyeballs and alligators, it's hard to remember your primary objective was to drain the swamp. Like it's not, it, it's when you're fighting the fires constantly and, and it doesn't feel like you're winning. People, we, we have a 51% burnout rate in this industry and 65% of those people who are burned out are looking to find another job. So we really need to find a way with innovation and value creation to help people understand that what they're the, 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 the tools that they're using are really helping them make a difference. And they're making progress with that. There's a human aspect to this that's really big. Well, it's the reason why I now teach at two universities, Northeastern and WPI, is um, Karen, I saw what this did for people at SRI. And um, instead of spinning their wheels doing stuff that really doesn't matter, big A's, but again, we can keep on using that because it's pretty universal. I'm first focusing on things that matter that actually make a real contribution. And that's what motivates the best people. That's what keeps the best people. Uh, but again, if people don't know how to do that, uh, you can't expect them to. Yeah. And so, Karen, Kurt, I think this has just been a phenomenal conversation. I think the the greatest framework takeaway from this is really just that value creation focus and focusing on the benefit of the customer because that is universal and it's not just something that applies to you know uber or applies to great web apps you know on your phone it 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 applies to anything that you're doing and i think especially just mentioning and sort of ending on that point karen about burnout about people really being wanting to be someplace where they feel like they're really making a difference and not just fighting fires um you know while someone else is just lighting a fire right next to them they know they're gonna have to, to put out it's it's coming back to that that framework, and I think I think it's it's been a really good focus on that. This is security is not immune to the need to have <laughs> leaders really take a great vision approach to this, rather than just being an afterthought or being a band aid or being a patch or a bolt on, which a lot of you know our point solution, uh, which which it can be looked at. Um, so I, I really like that. I really like that framework. So well, that by the way, I just reinforced that. That's a perfect summary and. Um, I think the only advice I give people about, you know, what they ought to focus on with their careers is, I said, are you going to be a professional? They go, yeah, I'm going to be a professional. What's going to be your job? Well, I'm going to do things. Um, well, aren't you going to do things that you hope matter to other people? Isn't that your only job? Every professional should. Well, do you know how to do that? If you don't know how to learn that, my only advice is, Learn how to do that because that's the one life skill you'll have that will only get better over your career and distinguish you and help address the great problem that Karen just uh, brought up, to be able to do things that have meaning for the, for the people involved. So Absolutely. And that's, and that's tough in a system that really just teaches compliance and conformity and to then go outside of that system that they 
many believe will teach them how to those skills. And it, like you said, Kurt, it doesn't. They don't. You don't come out of a lot of institutions, even some of the great ones with with those skills. So I'm I'm trying to create um, a number of universities. They'll be the first ones in the world that actually um, create graduates that have these skills. That's my that's my life's work at this point. Yep. And can we can we just quickly mention that the book that I brought up at the very beginning in Kurt's book on innovation is a fantastic primer on this topic. So if you don't have the opportunity to go to one of his classes or to take that from him at the university, read the book. What, Kurt, can you just give the quick title? What's called Innovation. It has a really shocking name. It's called Innovation. <laughs> I'm try and remember that one. It'll change the way you do your job. I would also say I'm on LinkedIn. I post there regularly, and I'd love to have a conversation with your audience. You know, about what you see, the problems you see, uh, how you're addressing them. Uh, that's how we're going to improve. So LinkedIn, Kirk Carlson. Excellent. Excellent. And Karen, where can people find you uh, out in the uh, out in the, the, the universe of, of the interwebs? I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Um, and also, and I, and I comment sometimes on, on Kirk's stuff because I, I want to report every single day. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm on Twitter too. So you can see me at Karen Morstell on Twitter. Excellent. Well, Karen, Kurt, thank you so much for joining this episode of the CIO Exchange Podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this latest episode. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more insights from technology leaders, as well as global research on key topics, visit vmware.com slash CIO.